0: When he's asked where he's from, musician David Byrne often tells people he lives on a little island off the eastern shore of America. He's referring, of course, to Manhattan. But his quip brings home the fact that people tend to forget that we live with water all around us. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. From the Hudson to the East River, the Gowanus Canal to Jamaica Bay— New York is a City of Water. And that's the title of a new documentary that takes a look at the history, present use, and future of New York's waterfronts. Joining us in the studio this morning is Jasper Goldman, who produced this new documentary. Jasper, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you very much, George. Also with us this morning is Carter Kraft, and Carter is with the Metropolitan Waterfront Alliance. Carter, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Jasper, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You work with the Municipal Arts Society, right?
1: That's correct. And one of the first things you know, uh, our boss, Kent Barwick, said when he was introducing the film for the premiere is, is, why did we allow somebody from England with a, quote, fake green card to make a movie about New York City's waterfront? Uh, but it's been a tremendous privilege to do that, and I'm very happy to who have done that and got to know the waterfront in the course of making this documentary.
0: So this was a pretty enlightening experience for you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've only lived in New York City since 2003. um, And so I really came to it uh, from the experience of somebody who didn't think of New York as a city of water. Uh, you know, I spent time in Manhattan, I spent time in Brooklyn, but I spent very, very little time on the waterfront. And so really discovering that there was a whole world out there that I had no idea existed was, was really fascinating and enlightening. And of course, you know, I I fully bought into the idea that, that we should be making more use of our waterfront as a city of water in here in New York.
0: Carter, what about you? You work with the Metropolitan Waterfront Alliance, but was water always a part of your background?
1: Yeah, growing up in North Carolina, I
2: was a swimmer and a little bit of a sailor and a rower, and uh, really appreciated the water element. Moving here, I think I became a, a water fan by necessity, as I've watched all my friends uh, head out to East Hampton for the weekend, spending hours on the Long Island Expressway or down to the Jersey Shore. Now it gives me great pleasure to say, I'm going to the end of my street to get in the water, whereas so many people seem to travel hours to get out of the city to find nature. In reality, it's right here in front of us. What neighborhood are you in? Um, I live in Hoboken now, but I've lived in six or seven neighborhoods in Manhattan over the last 15 years and uh, migrated across to the West Bank of the Hudson.
0: How about you, Jasper? Are you near the water?
1: I am. I actually live in in Williamsburg. and Of course, that's sort of ground zero for the transformation of the waterfront that's taking place right now. So I I see it sort of practically every day that there's a new crane going up somewhere along the waterfront that represents a new building or development that's happening.
0: A lot happening in Williamsburg. And recently, there was a preservation group that named the industrial waterfront in Brooklyn as an endangered place.
1: (laughs) That's exactly right. The National Trust... Uh, which is the, the country's leading preservation organization, uh, named the Brooklyn Industrial Waterfront as the number one endangered uh, aspect of our heritage in the United States. And they did that because we've really seen over the last few years uh, a tremendous loss of our industrial heritage. A lot of buildings have gone down, which, which should really have been preserved. Um, and so as, as we, we come on some, some of the icons like Domino Sugar and several other buildings along the waterfront, it's very timely that the National Trust have, have said that this industrial heritage should be preserved. You live there. You see it for yourself every day. Absolutely. Paint a picture of this area for us. Well, I, th- I think what's wonderful about uh, Greenpoint Williamsburg is that, that it is a neighborhood in transition. It, it's traditionally been a sort of had industrial waterfront um, with a working class inland, and over time it, it, it's sort of been changing, as, as you know. Um, and so the waterfront is is, is is becoming a sort of a blend of, of new buildings that are going up with these old buildings, and I think the old buildings are really uh, important because they give us a sense of, of where we came from, a sense of our history, um, and they can be adaptively reused in all kinds of incredible ways. Uh, you know, in London they have the Tate Modern, which is right by the water, um, and in, in Baltimore they have power plants there that are reused. Um, and it, it really is a tremendous thing to see these buildings be reused and, and it keeps a sense of, of where we came from. And, you know, the East River used to be, um, you know, the, the highway of New York City is as the film talks about. And, and these buildings remind us of that. So it, it's good to see a, a good big mix of old and new on the waterfront.
0: We're going to talk a lot more about the history of New York City's waterfront as well as its present state and its future. But I want to talk specifically now about the documentary A City of Water. How did the idea come about?
1: Well, I, I, I have a sort of interesting background in that, in that before becoming an urban planner, I was interested in making films, and I worked on film sets, and I made one or two films. Um, but but I always thought that filmmaking lacked a sort of a certain substance. You know, I, I wanted to really bring something to filmmaking. So when I became an urban planner, it was a logical sort of meshing of two interests that I had. Um, and you know, prior to making the Waterfront documentary and prior to coming to New York City, I made a film about the transformation of Beijing, the Hutongs over there. Um, and when I came to the Waterfront, it, it just occurred to me that there were so many themes that it. Our respective organisations were advocating for, you know, better access to the water itself. Uh, you know, keeping the use of our harbour, which is which is very important, the working waterfront. Uh, you know, the, the kinds of development that that bring a natural edge to the waterfront rather than just nest plant and railings. And I thought all of these things were very visual. You know, they were very cinematic. You know, there's there's no nothing more beautiful about New York than its its harbour and the view of the city from the water and the view of the water itself. You know, I'm sure you've all seen these Hollywood movies which begin with with the shot of Manhattan. You know, from the water or from the air and that's because it, it's so cinematic and so it just seemed to be a, the, the perfect medium to tell the story of what's happening today in the waterfront and what should happen as well because obviously we're an advocacy organization so we really had a sort of an agenda and a message that we wanted to put out there um and so the documentary format was was ideal for us.
0: Jasper, you present two voices at the very beginning of this documentary, a city of water, Deputy Mayor Dan Doctoroff as well as New York Congresswoman Nidia Velasquez, and they pretty much set the agenda for this debate about New York City's waterfront. Let's take a listen.
2: There is very little that in our view is more important than reclaiming that waterfront. This is a major major effort to open the waterfront to the people of New York City.
0: There is this rush from the part of the government to reclaim the
2: waterfront, but we sometimes do not understand what they mean by reclaiming the waterfront. It's so important that we educate our public because once it's done, that will be it.
0: The waterfront will be gone. In viewing your documentary, it appears that there are three main players in this fight for the waterfront. Developers, the city, and the public. Maybe there's a fourth. Lawmakers.
1: Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And, and what we tried to do in the film is, is really give a sense of, of how different groups, the different groups that you've mentioned really, saw this sort of moment in time. That, that was the interesting thing, that all of these groups agree that this is a pivotal moment for New York City's waterfront. We really have to make an effort to get the public engaged in the major decisions that, that are going to happen. Because as Congresswoman Velasquez says, if, if the public is not educated and not involved, the results will be less good than they will be otherwise.
2: And it's true. I mean, it's the classic public space battle, you know, from the arguments over what should Atlantic Yards become to what should downtown Brooklyn look like in the modern age to what should Times Square really be for New York City. And it's all true on the waterfront. But the reality is... You know, land use changes so slowly and so rarely. And with the waterfront having been industrial for more than 200 years, you know, we're at a moment in time now where its industry has migrated off of the waterfront into highways or out of cities and into lower cost labor markets or even overseas. You know, we've really got one chance to get the waterfront right. So it's not just a fight. You know, it's a real struggle. And we shouldn't uh, be discouraged by it. We should just use it uh, to fuel the process and try to get more people involved to get out of this sort of either or, you know, either dirty and industrial or, or luxury and green and residential and really say that we need a diverse waterfront. We need a working waterfront and we need a green waterfront and we need people who can live there and we need people who can work there, you know, and with the volume of waterfront that New York and the metropolitan area have, 532 miles of waterfront in the city and 760 in the region... We really can have it all, but we need to get to work right now, because uh, if we do it wrong, we won't get another chance for 100 or 200 years.
1: Could I just add something to that? I, I think you know one of the things that I've observed in my limited time in New York is that the best planning in the city tends to take place as a result of partnerships between the, the public and, and the city. It's, it's when the public really gets involved that the standards get raised. You get a higher standard of development. I think you saw that with Ground Zero, uh, and you've seen that in several other places. And so the reason why you know, that we made this film is really to sort of spark the public's interest. In what's happening on the waterfront, you know there are a lot of different visions of what should happen. But if the public gets involved, that then something what gets built there is going to be better than if it's just the developers and the public officials who make all the decisions.
0: And as we mentioned on the top of the show, it's very easy to forget that the water is all
1: around us here in the Mm, city. You can work in Midtown,
0: you could go to school there. Where's the water?
1: That's right. I mean, sometimes you only see the water when you're driving down the FDR, or you know, you, you happen to you know go to a bar in Dumbo. Um, And that's part of the problem is is we're not yet as connected to the waterfront as we should be. And so part of the challenge in the years ahead is to make sure that development doesn't wall off the waterfront. It doesn't become a private enclave, but it really becomes a vibrant part of the city. I think one of the things that that one of our interviewees, Philip Lopate, talks about is how he's afraid of, of the waterfront sort of becoming a suburbanized, you know, something that doesn't quite feel connected to New York City, doesn't quite have that vitality that New York City is famous for.
0: A lot of what's happening with these developments, especially these residential, developments going up along the waterfront of these esplanades. So you have yeah. access to the water front, not to the water but not itself. Not to the water,
2: right. And that's you know that's the 20th century model and you know here we are a whole generation after the Clean Water Act when New York City and all its water ratepayers uh, have spent close to 30 billion dollars on sewage treatment plants, 14 plants all around the city, the water is the cleanest it's been in close to 200 years. And to me that's the challenge of designing the waterfront right is making use of the natural benefits and the natural characteristics that the water actually represents, whether it's for recreational boating, whether it's for swimming, whether it's for fishing. You know, there's lots of opportunities out there, not just uh, uh, for ferries and tugs, but for human recreation.
0: Author Philip Lope talks about that. To him, the waterfront isn't truly integrated. Let's hear what he has to say in the documentary.
2: I came to think of the waterfront as kind of pathologically averse to actually touching water everywhere. There were impediments, first to get inland to the water's edge,
1: and then you couldn't actually stick your hands or feet in the water almost anywhere except for a few spots. Part of this is, is to do with the history of the waterfront. I think, I think you know, traditionally the water, the water has not been clean in New York City. Since around the time of 1920s and 1930s, you know, the East River was like the Newtown Creek or like the guanas Canal used to be, you know, a very dirty place. You know, when Tudor City was built... It was built famously w- with the windows facing inland and not out to the water because people didn't want to look at what was happening on the waterfront. You know, the slaughterhouses and the dirty water, they faced inland. And so that was sort of a metaphor for the city turning its back on, on the waterfront. And I think what, what we saw initially in this first wave of waterfront development, which is still, in fact, going on right now, is the water being treated as sort of a scenic feature, something to look at but not actually to get involved in and, and to actually touch Um, And, you know, it was very interesting. We had a designer come and give us a lecture the other day, and he was talking about how sort of in the early 80s and the late 70s when waterfront development started to really kick off With think projects like Battery Park City, you know, the goal was just to get any kind of waterfront development, just to get a a foothold, a toehold so that people could actually get to the to the waterfront. Um, And so the Battery Park City model was seen as something terrific, something marvelous. It still is marvelous in in some ways. Um, But that became the sort of the template for development all across the city was the idea that an Esplanade, railings, uh, street furniture, that was the way to develop the waterfront. And as we, you know, as we move into the 21st century, it's time to think about how we can go further than that. Uh, to really create a waterfront that's integrated properly with both the water and the city itself.
0: You mentioned the cleanliness of the water, but many New Yorkers still think that the waterways here are polluted and dirty. Is there a demand for people who want to swim oh, in New York waters? Oh, absolutely.
2: I mean, the uh, the volume of kayaking, people doing Eskimo rolls in the water. You know, the, Ten years ago, there was one boat club, uh, Sebago, on Jamaica Bay, and now there's close to two dozen scattered all over the city. You know, Twenty years ago, there was one swim, that was organized the uh, the swim around Manhattan Island that started around 1982, and now there's more than a dozen, you know, uh, across the East River from the Brooklyn side to the Manhattan side, underneath the Brooklyn Bridge. Just two weeks ago, there was a swim around Governor's Island. Uh, the week before that was the Around Manhattan swim. So the volume of in-water recreation activity is truly exploding. I'd say it's growing faster than on uh, on land recreation or even field sports.
1: I think I think people are starting to come to the realization that 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 land is our most constrained resource in, in New York City. You know, we only have a limited supply of it, but we have this huge amount of of open space in the form of the waterways and figuring out how to use that for recreational purposes as well as all the other kinds of purposes is really sort of our urban planning challenge. I, I think that the, the cleanliness of the, of the water is really an interesting story because it, w- the water has gotten as, as I understand much much cleaner over the last 30 years since the, the clean, clean water act of the 70s but it still isn't quite clean enough in some places for swimming and fishing and all the other kinds of recreational activity that could take place in the waterfront. And one of the key things that we try to do with the documentary is make people aware Aware of the connection between the cleanliness of the water and what needs to be done to make it even cleaner, and the, the more use of the waterfronts for recreational use like swimming and fishing and, and, and boating, um, and so the movie you know goes into some detail about, for example, the issue of combined sewage overflows, which is when it rains, uh, sewage systems you know this the sewage and and the the natural rainwater system the pipes are combined. So, so the system can't handle it. So, so sewage actually goes into the waterways when it rains. And this can be addressed, you know, by a number of different ways, you know, more wetlands, you know, upgrading our sewage plants. And that will have the effect of making the water cleaner that will in turn have the effect of making the waterfront more usable, the water itself more usable for recreation. So, so that link is very important because that's really the key to getting even more use is not only planning for it on the land side, but also getting the water cleaner will lead to more swimming, more fishing, more boating, etc.
0: One individual in your documentary said something that was quite interesting, and that was the federal government has to maintain water quality consistent with local usage. I wanted to ask you about this because it sounds then that if many people start to jump into the river to swim, that's going to increase local usage- and they'll have to do more to keep the waterway
2: clean. That's exactly right. But that's what underlies the Federal Clean Water Act, now 35 years old, which is that the federal government and through the state governments and through localities are supposed to support the water quality, which which allows for the human use, which is already existing. So where people are fishing, uh, where people are diving, where people are swimming, where people are boating, all that are the, you know that's the pattern according to which the city needs to be making its investments in sewage treatment plants to uh, continue to improve uh, improve our water quality.
0: So, Jasper, getting back to what you said about getting the public more involved, should then the public get more involved by utilizing the waterway more and putting more pressure on the government to clean it up?
1: Absolutely. I mean, when you see people, you know, I had no idea that people swam in in the Hudson River. If you had told me that people were swimming in that before I came to New York City or or became living here, I would have thought that was insane. Um, But when you actually see people jumping in and into the Hudson, it is actually safe to do so if there hasn't been a recent rainfall, um, then you really get a sense that this water needs to be clean. You know, there's no reason why it shouldn't be clean, and there's no reason why we can't make it cleaner. And seeing people actually swim in it is the most powerful thing in terms of, of... energizing you to be part of an environmental movement to, to, to move in that direction of a cleaner harbor.
0: Beyond swimming in it, just canoeing in it, and you caught up with someone in the documentary, a little girl from the Bronx who just finished up a canoe ride. Let's hear from her.
2: When you're on a boat, you're just feeling the wind rushing you through the river. like You don't have nothing to do there, and you go listen to nature and be with nature. Every kid should be allowed to come here because it's so beautiful, and It's the Bronx, and you mostly don't see anything good
0: here. Carter, you were telling me off air that you met some kids who have never been on a boat in New York City, never saw the Statue of Liberty in person. Very true. I
2: mean, it should be, you know, a part of the mandatory school curriculum to get kids out on all types of boats. But lots of the... Uh, community-based programs that we work with, Rockin' the boat here in the Bronx, and floating the apple, which has satellites all over the city, the Urban Divers up at Roberto Clemente, Gowanus Dredgers, have all started finding ways to get young people out. You know, it's the it's the lessons learned of the environmental movement. You know, when you convert somebody when they're fifty or sixty, you know, it's almost too late. But if we can make people environmental stewards as they're growing up uh, and build it into their uh, into their lifestyle, you know, we'll end up with a lot cleaner water twenty years from now.
0: Than, uh, than we otherwise might. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarkey. This morning we're talking about New York City's waterfront, New York City's waterways, and specifically about a new documentary put out by the Municipal Art Society called A City of Water. We're joined this morning by the producer of the documentary, Jasper Goldman, as well as Carter Craft, and Carter's with the Metropolitan Waterfront Alliance. I want to talk more about the history of New York's waterways. And Jasper, you've got this great archival footage in the documentary of the Hudson River and you interview author Philip Lopate about that history. Let's take a listen to Philip here.
2: The, the New York waterways uh, the way they were in the 19th and early 20th centuries, they were an incredible superhighway of every boat imaginable from the smallest sailboat
1: to the largest uh, battleship Everything, one after another, was streaming down those waterways. I mean, New York was founded because of its location. It was a port. It started off as a port city, and this was the city's raison d'etre. Um, and at a certain point, we, we, we have become cut off from that. We've been cut off from the waterfront, even though we have a very functional harbor still. We are no longer, as inhabitants, as New Yorkers, think of ourselves, I think, as a waterfront city. And that's something that, that we need to fix in the years to come. But when you see, so when you actually see this archival footage and you see the amount of activity that used to take place in the harbor, I think it, it sort of takes your breath away. Because, you know, as Philip was saying in that clip you played, you know, it really was an endless stream of boats. There, there were boats coming down of all shapes and sizes, recreational boats. But also, you know, battleships and, and, and sail ships, and um and it it really I think is 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 quite inspiring. You know, New York City has this wonderful sort of marine water heritage that, that we're very that we've sort of forgotten about. You know, I think the clipper ships were were, were built here. You know, this was the home of the America's Cup and, and where yacht races, yacht boats were built. Carl, do you want to? No,
2: that's add more? Right. that's exactly right. I mean, the the New York Not Yacht Club, now ensconced in Midtown, was founded with their first boathouse on Staten Island. Uh, they had their boathouse uh, also in Hoboken, and now they've got a land, beautiful landlocked space uh, just, off of, uh, just
0: off of Madison Avenue. As you both mentioned, there's a lot happening. There are many developments currently underway along the waterfront throughout the city. We're talking about Red Hook. We're talking about Long Island City. We're talking about Williamsburg. Where, though, are the battles most contentious
1: Well, I I think in in Greenpoint, Williamsburg, you you have to mention that because the the Greenpoint, Williamsburg waterfront really had at least four different components as far as the community was concerned. There was the uh, there was the issue of open space along the water. There was the issue of the height and bulk of the buildings. There was the issue of industrial retention. And there was the issue of affordable housing. and really, I think it's 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 fair to say that, that the ultimate result wasn't really a successful balance of all those different concerns. In the end, the affordable housing, which is the most attractive issue for the politically, was the issue that won out. And so as a result, we have buildings that can be built there of a maximum of forty stories, which is really an enormous contrast with the inland area which is typically three to five stories and in my personal opinion is really way too big uh, of development along the waterfront because it has the, the sort of psychological effect if all those buildings actually get built. And I think, you know, about 22 of them could be built according to the rezoning. Then, you, then you'll have a sort of this sort of wall of very, very high buildings along the waterfront. I mean, 40 stories is actually taller than most of the buildings along Battery Park City. I mean, it's, it's really enormous. Um, and so I, I think what it comes down to, the lesson from that is, is really that we need to do a better job of, of, of figuring out how to balance different needs. For the, for the for the waterfront, you know, in, in that case, you know, you probably would have got just a successful development with fifty or twenty-story buildings, um, but you also could have done far more to keep our industry along the waterfront. You know, where it was viable to, to keep it. Um, you know, sure, you need you, the space for, for new development, but, but keeping that industry and keeping those blue-collar jobs there is very, very important. Um, and Red Hook is another great example of, of a sort of a clash between the new and the old. Uh, in this case, the, the the city wanted to put a box store in uh, where a graving dock was. Um, and unfortunately, that there wasn't a uh, an ability to, to find a way to, to keep those two uses compatible and keep them both in there, as could have been the case, we believe. And so the result is that, is that we lost... Uh, We lost a graving dock uh, for an Ikea, for a box store. Um, And many of the people that we spoke to who who represent the working waterfront in this city really feel that that repair facility was badly, badly needed. There's a waiting list, I think, of two years for ships in the New York Harbor uh, to, get, to, to use a repair facility. So they needed that repair facility to be there. Um, and one of our interviewees says that if we continue to see, to let our working waterfront facilities be replaced by parks or, or by residential use, then you know, our port is, is really going to suffer and may ultimately not be viable. Um, and as you know, I, I didn't realize this at all until we started making the film. This is part of my personal education. Um, but the, the port and the working waterfront is so critical to the sustainability of New York City, you know, as one of our interviewees says at one point, if, if we took off, uh, you know, some of the cargo and some of the stuff that's brought in by boat to the city, and we put it on the roads instead, you know, every barge is the equivalent of, you know, I think it's a thousand trucks. Can you imagine the impact on, on, on our on our road system if if, if we allow that? Um, and so keeping, keeping the viability of the working waterfront, um, in addition to allowing for new residences, is, is really a sort of a key goal. And I don't think we've done a good enough job here in New York City of doing that over the last few years. New York
0: Congresswoman Nidia Velasquez talks about the working waterfront here in the city in your documentary. Let's hear from her.
2: Throughout the history of New York City, it has been a working waterfront. And there are meaningful jobs and blue-collar jobs that should and must be protected
0: those are the jobs that you're talking about. There is a working container port. American Stevedoring still operating in Red Hook. Is still that threatened?
2: Op- still operating in Red Hook, even though their uh, their lease expired, I think, at the end of April. And that and Nidia's district, you know, is really the the front line of waterfront gentrification from Red Hook, just south of Brooklyn Bridge Park, all the way down to Sunset Park. You know, that's really one waterfront entity where fuel oil comes in and out, where solid waste comes in and out where containers come in and out, where tugboats and, and barges come in and out. Uh, and now the, the city has a new plan for Piers 6 through 12, which is the area just a little bit south of Atlantic Avenue, uh, down uh, to, the, to the tip of Red Hook, down by f- what used to be Fort Defiance way back in the pre-Revolutionary War days. And we've seen plans in Erie Basin, where the old Revere Sugar Refinery uh, may end up getting uh, rezoned and redeveloped for housing. Um, And there, you know, in an area that was designated by the city itself uh, and approved by the state, you know, less than six years ago as a significant maritime industrial area, you know, you may end up with a condominium proposal right across from the busiest barge port in the entire harbor. And if you think people are going to pay a million dollars for a one-bedroom waterfront condo with a a boat slip out front only to be woken up every morning at 4 o'clock by a tugboat, you know, sounding its horn as it's leaving Erie Basin, you know that's going to displace uh, that facility you know much to the uh, you know much towards the spectre that jasper mentioned where every time you've got a tug and barge pushing oil around you know that heats buildings like this and heats our schools and and heat and even carries gasoline around you know that could be as little as 600 trucks or it could be 6000 trucks that you're taking off the streets and that's not just trucks off of you know interstate 95 that's trucks off fordham road you know that's trucks off of the major Deating expressway that's trucks off of first avenue so the waterways don't just serve sort of the global uh, container port as uh, as american stevedoring you know really functions in the gl- in the global uh uh, in the global marketplace, albeit with some uh, barge connections to New Jersey, but the waterways really support uh, commerce and transit and improve the air quality within this region, and which is why we need to protect them.
0: Doesn't more cocoa come through New York than any other place in the world? Is that right?
2: Absolutely. It comes to New York. A lot of it ends up in Pennsylvania um, at, at the Hershey plant, and a lot of it gets redistributed uh, through here through a, a number of the, the candy makers, um, New York also brings in and moves out uh, recycled fabric, um, scrap metal, which is our uh, uh, you know, taking huge volumes of truck trips uh, off of the highways and off of the bridges and off of the tunnels by keeping it on the waterways.
0: How does New York City compare to... Other communities up the line, the Hudson line of Metro North, for instance, there's waterfront development in Yonkers. There's waterfront development in Peekskill and Ossining. Are we seeing things that are going on there that are any different than New York City?
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, up and down the Hudson River and across the state of New Jersey, you see what's called transit-oriented development happening at the water's edge where the development is happening around the train station or around the new ferry landing as, uh, as they just started in Yonkers last month. And that's something that I don't think New York City has thought enough about in terms of building in the mass transit, water transit or other surface transit, to these new waterfront neighborhoods. And uh, and I think that was the beauty of New York 100 years ago was that the transportation came first and then the development followed, but we've forgotten to put uh, to put transit in first to to where we're putting development now. You know, if you leave it to the market, the waterfront being what it is, you know, the scenic benefits, the romance, the light, the the salt air, you know, it will become luxury residential housing. And it'll become a, a private enclave the same way gated communities in in Westchester or Bergen counties only serve a limited few. And that would be a complete crime. Because what people have forgotten, and I think a lot of our elected officials have forgotten, and I don't think everyday people have forgotten, is that the waterfront, for more than 1,000
1: years, has been public space. And, and you know, with so much waterfront development about to be, to be taking place in New York, the public really needs to be engaged in fighting to make sure that, that it's a great waterfront, but it's really a piece of the public domain.
0: And that brings us back to your documentary, A City of Water, which aims to do that, get the public more involved, What are your plans for this documentary and its distribution?
1: Well, we want to get it seen as as widely as as possible. That's that's the simple goal. Um, And so, you know, we we began with with a great screening down at at Pier Two in Brooklyn, a disused warehouse that that is going to be the site of the future Brooklyn Bridge Park. So, a really ideal venue. You know, metaphor for the city and in, in the waterfront in transition. Um, and in, in August and September, we're going we're to have a, a series of screenings all around the city from Stuyvesant Cove to, to the Bronx. And if you've got uh,
2: readers out there who want to arrange for a screening or would like to host a screening, whether it's a block association, a tenants group, a rowing club, whatever, a senior center... You know, please get in touch with us at waterwire.net or give us a call because we'd love to come share the message uh, with you and see how we can work
0: together. Carter Craft with the Metropolitan Waterfront Alliance, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And Jasper Goldman, Jasper is with the Municipal Art Society, and he is the producer of City of Water, a new documentary about New York's waterways. Jasper, thanks to you. Thank you very much, George. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to our producer, Jody Avergan, for his assistance in putting this all together. He's behind the screen here at the engineering desk for us this morning. And thank you for listening. And remember, you can get archives of Cityscape and our podcast. You can find out information about that at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldardi. Have a great weekend.